Amen. If you'll find in your Bibles, Luke chapter 22. We'll stand together in a moment, but I'll give you a moment to find it. Luke chapter 22, verse 35, uh, this morning, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, probably in your Bible, there's, there's only a few pages left of this Gospel. And uh, for the rest of the Gospel, we're, we're heading toward the cross and then to the resurrection. And these precious uh, passages that we'll move through in the weeks to come. But uh, for today, turn to Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 35. Uh, as you find that, if you'll stand with me for the reading of, of God's Word. Would you hear then God's Word, which has been preserved for you today, uh, God's people? And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, uh, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. He said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. During World War II, a U.S. Army transport ship carrying 902 servicemen was struck by a German submarine. A panic and chaos quickly set in as the men raced for lifeboats in the frigid waters off the coast of Greenland. In the midst of the pandemonium, four Army chaplains worked to calm the frightened men. One was a Jewish rabbi, one was a Methodist, one was a Roman Catholic priest, and one was a Dutch Reformed minister. It sounds like a joke, but it's a serious story. On the deck of the ship, they worked to distribute life vests to the soldiers escaping into the frigid waters. When they ran out of life vests, each minister simultaneously removed their jacket and gave them to the soldiers. They didn't call out for the soldiers who were part of their particular tradition. They simply gave their jackets to the next man in line. A one survivor would later say, quote, it was the finest thing I have seen or hoped to see this side of heaven. As the ship went down, survivors in nearby rafts could see the four chaplains, arms linked and braced against the slanting deck. Their voices also could be heard offering prayers and singing hymns. Of the 902 men aboard, only 230 survived. Congress later conferred a medal of heroism they called the Four Chaplains Medal upon the four men. Before boarding the ship... 
Uh, this is how the Dutch Reformed minister, Chaplain Poling, asked his father to pray for him. A quote, pray for me, not for my safe return. That wouldn't be fair. Just pray that I shall do my duty. Never be a coward and have the strength, courage, and understanding of men. I just pray that I shall be adequate. When we hear stories like that of heroism, we might ask, what leads the person to that moment when they can make the choice to give up their life vest or to jump in front of the moving bus? What leads to that moment, right? And if you ask people, usually the answer they give is just, the need was there and I, I rose to the occasion. Someone had to do it, right? But I would argue that there's preparation that happens leading up to that moment. You, you saw the Dutch minister there. Uh, you know, in the moment, he, he, he needed courage, just like the other chaplains. Uh, but you see his prayer. And I think it reflected that he had preparation leading into this. In one sense, his real test came long before the moment came. Uh, he had decided in his mind at some point in the past that no matter what happens, I would lay down my life for these men. Uh, he went through the crucible before, and then he was ready. In many ways, what we see in this passage is, is Jesus' final preparation, as it were, uh, for the cross. Uh, we're going to look at the cross itself, and of course, that is a trial in and of itself to remain faithful, to trust the Lord in the midst of the pain and the suffering and, and the wrath poured out on him. But in many ways, you could argue that Jesus in the garden, as he wrestles, as he prays, and then as he leaves the garden saying, your will be done. We see from here on out a Jesus whose face is set, uh, who is silent before uh, those who are inflicting pain upon him. And so in many ways, this is his final test, his final preparation. And of course, we know he succeeds. He is faithful, as he always is. Uh, but Jesus, being the leader and shepherd that he is, it's, we, we not only see in our passage his preparation, but we see him preparing his disciples for the time to come. Even in his greatest moments of anguish, Jesus is thinking of his disciples and praying for them and longing that they would be ready for the next few hours where their weakness will be on full display, but then beyond that, to the life of the early church that they would live, to the life that we live, of joy but also suffering as we await the coming of our Savior. And so the point of the message this morning is to be prepared for the time to come. Be prepared for the time to come. Even as we see Jesus' preparation and his preparation of the disciples, we find ourselves in a situation probably much more like the early church than sometimes we like to think about. As pressures bear down, as persecution rises, depending on where you live in the world, of course, I believe that Jesus wants to prepare you for the time to come, even as you watch him in his moment of trial. And so what do you need? What do you need, Christian, for the days ahead. Number one, you need provision. You need provision. If it's helpful to you, there's an outline which you can follow along with in the bulletin. We'll look at verses 35 through 38 first. Number one, you need provision. And throughout this text, my mind kept going back to the Lord's prayer when the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And here, of course, the words, give us this day our daily bread, I think might be echoing in the background as we look here. But look at what Jesus says. Uh, he's, he says to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, uh, did you lack anything? Uh, and they said, Nothing. 
Jesus is thinking back to Luke chapter 9, when the 12, the, the same disciples, were sent out to preach the gospel. And then in Luke chapter 10, when the 72 were sent out to do the same thing. And in each case, he said, go out, don't bring supplies, don't you know, make a list and pack it all up, just go and rely on the hospitality of those who would receive you. Uh, trust me that I'm going to provide for you. And he has them think back to this and says, hey, when you did that, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. No, the Lord is my shepherd. I, I shall not want. They, they know what it means to be provided for. He's sort of looking back first at provision because in a moment he's going to look ahead. And as he looks back, he's reminding them, no, God takes care of his people, uh, especially those he calls, he equips. You know, every Christian in this room could probably give you a story uh, when money was tight, uh, when it seemed like, how are we going to get through this month? And then a, a check showed up in the mail, uh, you know, like a late birthday present or something that was delayed by four months, and nothing about it really made sense, but it was the exact amount that you needed for the budget that month. Any head nods? I, every Christian knows what it means to feel the pinch and, and see God provide, even in times of, of lean times, times of suffering. The disciples surely knew this, but Jesus is drawing a contrast. He's building that up to say, okay, look, you, I provided for you. But, but look in verse uh, 36. He says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. We'll talk about the sword in a moment. That raises some interesting questions. But he's drawing a contrast. He's saying, back then I sent you out, you came back, you were provided for. And they said, yes. But now things are changing. There are similarities. You always need to trust me. Uh, but the times are changing. That was actually, whether you realize it or not, a time of peace. And they might say, well, Jesus, the time of your ministry hasn't been all that peaceful. I mean, you've had enemies. And... But compared to what's about to happen, Jesus is about to be handed over like a thief. Uh, he's going to be called a blasphemer. He's going to die a Roman death on a cross as a false king, as a false messiah. And then the early church is going to join in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, by the end of the New Testament canon, uh, as the last words are being penned, persecution is rising and rising. And there would be centuries of persecution for the church. Where to be a Christian, to be baptized, in some ways, put a target on your forehead. And Jesus, I think, is looking ahead to literally the time to come that, that's about to happen. The suffering is about to pick up right before the disciples' eyes, but then the time to come after that which means the time to come for us because we live in these same days waiting for the coming of Christ. He says, look back, I provided for you then. Times are changing. Urgency is, is going up. And so if I provided for you then, I'll provide for you now. But it's going to look a little different. It's going to look a little bit more intense. It's going to look a little bit more life and death. And I think that's why he brings this idea of, you know, if you don't have a sword, you know, sell your cloak and by a sword. And of course, it raises the question, is Jesus saying, those were times of peace, now the church should bear the sword. You know, if anyone tries to come against the church, draw your sword, fight them off. Is this Jesus telling them that it's changed in this sense? I, I would say no. Uh, not that it's wrong for a Christian to defend themselves. And I think we have textual evidence just right here in Luke. 
Um, If you look at verse uh, 50 and 51, as Jesus is about to be betrayed, the guards come. Calvin's, uh, Pastor Calvin will help us next week on this passage. Uh, But it says, one of the disciples struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. I think that same tone, Jesus saying, no, no, stop. (laughs) This is not what I'm talking about. I think that's how we could read verse 38. They say, look, Lord, here are two swords. Right? The disciples, you know, concrete as ever. (laughs) He said sword. (laughs) Here's swords. Uh, And and that wouldn't be shocking. The idea that they had swords, people carried swords with them. This was very common in the day. And it wasn't forbidden from Christians, but they present two swords and Jesus says, it is enough, right? If he meant, yeah, go take Rome, <laughs> he wouldn't have said, yeah, two will do it. Two, two swords is good. Uh, I think the tone, we need to be careful, but I think the tone here is more, no, it's enough, that, enough of this. And then he moves them to the garden. Uh, the point that he is making is that the times ahead are life and death, he provided for them then, he will provide for them now. And so, Christian, I need to ask you, are you preparing for the days ahead? Are you looking to him for provision? Because they, like us, were in the same period of time of suffering mingled with joy, waiting for the Savior to come. A Peter would later say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We're not above our master. For the rest of Luke, we'll see his suffering, and we partake of the same, so that one day we partake of his glory. Are you being prepared for the days to come? You might think, well, yes, but I'm not like those chaplains. I'm not the person who's going to do the hero move in the moment. Uh, Calvin, uh, John Calvin reminds us that it's not as if we just sort of muster something. Calvin says this, Let us not doubt that Christ has regard to us in the present day, since he does not hurry us into the battle while we are still untrained and inexperienced, but before sending us to the field, supplies us with arms and with courage. He'll give you everything you need, uh, even for the moment if it comes. But Jesus is saying, that's how it was then, but now things are different. Verse 37, he sort of zooms in, and if the disciples ask, well, how are they different, Lord? What's about to happen? Verse 37 says this, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus starts to peel back and give them a lens through which they might not understand it now, but they would certainly understand it later by the Spirit. A lens through which to say what is about to happen to Jesus. It's interesting, this is from Isaiah chapter 53, a well-known passage for Christians, a beloved passage. This is the only time in all four Gospels when that passage or anywhere in Isaiah 53 is directly quoted. And yet, if you read the Gospel accounts of his suffering and death, you can't help but know that they had Isaiah 53 in their mind, shaping, both describing what's about to happen and giving the answer of why, what is going on. Uh, of course, we, the, the passage right here that he's quoting is, um, 
is from, uh, oh goodness, you could look it up later, but it's Isaiah 53. <laughs> um, and around that same chapter, just to give you a taste of, of what, what's called a, a servant song in Isaiah, there's many of these servant songs. This is the fourth of them and probably the most well-known. Uh, we see what's called the suffering servant, the Messiah we know to be Jesus. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Or verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, if you keep reading in Isaiah 53, you see sort of two themes intermingled. Uh, one of which, the first of which, I think Jesus is emphasizing first here. That's the unjust condemnation of the suffering servant. Uh, he says here, I, I'm, numbered, I'm about to be numbered with the transgressors. You know, treated just like a transgressor. Treated like a criminal. Uh, he's literally about to be, you know, in between two criminals on the cross. Although I, I don't think he's predicting one exact moment, but really this whole passion narrative as he's... As the, as the guards come and take him away in chains and as he's spit upon and, and as he comes before Herod and is mocked and as he uh, exchanges places with Barabbas, this known criminal, all of this fulfills that he's numbered with the transgressors, this unjust condemnation that Isaiah uses in the words despised, rejected, smitten, stricken, afflicted. The disciples are about to see this take place before their eyes. But there's another theme throughout Isaiah 53 and that permeates the Gospels, and it's the undeserved grace, the undeserved substitution for his people. Uh, so in that same uh, mystery verse where he's numbered with the transgressors, uh, it ends by saying that he, he makes intercession for the transgressors. It sort of flips the script. He's numbered with the criminals, but now it's saying, no, no, all of us have fallen short. All of us are transgressors, and he suffered for them. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for us, crushed for us, wounded for us, and for our healing. Verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, what he is about to do, why he's wrestling in the garden, as we'll see in just a moment. Is he's looking into the cup of God's wrath uh, that is due for sin against a holy God. And, and, and we might balk at that, but we know that when we hear a story of injustice, when we hear a story of an innocent child being murdered or something of that sense, something burns within us that says, no, justice has to happen. A person can't do that and just say, it's okay. We know deep in our bones that justice needs to be fulfilled. And Isaiah 53 tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. It wasn't just the Pharisees or the counselors that spit in his face. All of us, the disciples included, have gone astray. And he was led to the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If he's your Savior, that means that it was for you. It means he was wounded for you 
for your healing, for your forgiveness, even if you would believe in him right now, today. And I pray that you would. And so Jesus stares this reality uh, in, in, in the face, as it were, and that leads us to the second part here in the sermon. We, we said, what do you need for the time ahead? You need provision. And now, number two, you need prayer. You need prayer. And, and it's incredible. Jesus says, you know, remember they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus taught them. He gave them words, form to say, this is what you should pray for. This is what prayer looks like. Now, I think he's going to show them what prayer looks like. But first he calls them to prayer. In verses 39 through 40, uh, they, they, come to, uh, they come to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom. Right? He's not hiding. He knows Judas is going to come soon. So he just goes to where he could be found. And when they come to the place, he says to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He calls them to prayer, right? This most dire moment, things are about to spiral as it seems to be out of control, and he calls them to pray. You know, sometimes you hear the phrase, when all else fails, pray. Um, Or, you know, I've tried everything, And I guess now all I can do is pray. Uh, But I think Jesus is saying quite literally, when all else fails, all else is about to fail. And so pray. He's calling them to prayer. He says, pray that you might not enter into temptation. Certainly in the hours to come, but then in the rest of their life as believers. And yet, what do we see? We see their failure to pray. Verse 45, as he comes to them, he finds them sleeping for sorrow. If you've ever fallen asleep during your devotions, you know, you're in good company here. Uh, But you might wonder, how could they sleep? I mean, even if they don't fully understand, he's just talked about dying and how could they sleep? And and yet, perhaps you know what it is like to have the weight of sin or the weight of doubt or anxiety or depression bear down on your eyelids, as it were, that sleep can be almost an escape even in dire moments. And Jesus finds them like this, but he rouses them. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You, you hear his shepherd's heart. He, he doesn't want them to scatter. He doesn't want them to go away. He's been praying for them, and he calls them to prayer. You know, Christian, do you pray? Without ceasing, regularly, For the days ahead, prayer is an indispensable tool in the arsenal of the Christian well-prepared. You're called not simply to be aware and to prepare for the pressures and challenges and the evil around you, but to pray for kings, for cities, for families, for the gospel, for your own growth. Pray that you might not enter into temptation. Certainly pray for policy, pray for change. Amen. We're called to pray for that, but I would say all the more pray for purity. Pray for your heart. Pray that you would be able to say, like Jesus says, that your will be done, not mine. And so we see their failure to pray, and then we see Jesus' success in prayer, Jesus' prayer on our behalf. We talked about that last week. He says, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. He's the one who holds us fast. His prayer empowers our prayer 
So let's look then to very briefly at the content of his prayer right here in the heart of the passage. And I think it really shows the heart of our Savior, this prayer, verses 41 through 44. It says, He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared an angel strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The focus of Jesus' prayer is like the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. But we see here Jesus wrestling in a way that perhaps makes us uncomfortable. I think this what could be seen as somewhat of a holy of holies right in the midst of this passage, this intimate moment where Luke is showing us something that even the disciples didn't fully see as they slept for sorrow and and were further away. Jesus before his heavenly Father, the cross ahead of him, wrestling with it. I think this pushes right up to the limit of our understanding, and there's mystery here, of, of the full humanity of Christ. We know that he's without sin. There's no inclination in him toward evil. He's never tempted internally like we are. But he can be tempted externally, to use our language carefully, like Satan at the beginning of the gospel. You know, turn, turn these stones to bread or go up to the temple, show yourself. Temptations can come at him. But Jesus, of course, is the faithful one. But again, this come behold the wondrous mystery here because Hebrews describes it this way in chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What? <laughs> the Savior of the world who was with the Father before all time, before time was created, one with Father and Spirit, came in frail humanity, not sinful flesh, but frail. He had to learn obedience. This was his moment of testing. From here on out, he would go to the cross. But Don't read his words as if Jesus is sort of saying them for the benefit of, well, who? No one else was listening. He truly, before his father, looked at the cup. Looked at the cup of God's wrath. All we like sheep have gone astray. Justice is demanded. Jesus looked at the cup and he knew it was his role, which he took joyfully to drink the cup down to its very dregs. And so he truly looked at the cup. He truly trembled. He truly meant when he said, in essence, if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. We see Jesus succeeded here where all others failed. Adam failed and ate the fruit. Moses failed and struck the rock in anger. 
Israel failed over and over and over. David failed in his lust. The disciples failed. They're sleeping. But Jesus did not. This was the greatest of all tests, and he succeeded. He said, not my will, but yours be done. That means that long before Jesus died in your place, which we rightly emphasize, he prayed in your place. He wrestled in your place. He obeyed in your place. He sweat in your place. He bled in your place. So that, yes, Jesus died for you, but Jesus lived for you. And he now ever lives to make intercession for you. So do you feel frail in your faith? Is, uh, do you look at Jesus' prayer and say, my life is nothing like that, that would just submit everything to the Father's will? Well, you have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You're united with him. He lived for you. He lives for you. And he gives you his mind, his heart, which loves the Father, which will give up anything to follow him. He calls you and equips you. He prepares you for the time to come so that you don't have to wonder. If you would turn to him, if you would abide in him, you will have everything you need. How can we be prepared to stand boldly when the time comes? We, we prepare. We draw deeply and daily from his provision. We draw to our knees in desperate prayer. We devote ourselves fully and always to his will. But at the very same time, and empowering all of that, we have been prepared because he provides daily bread in both times of peace and war. He daily lives to pray for us that our strength may not fail. Through his spirit, he conforms us more and more to his will. He continually lives and loves to joyfully pray for you, not for your safe passage, but that you shall do your duty and never cower and have all strength and courage and understanding and above all stand and in the end hear those precious words from your father, well done, a good and faithful servant. That's what he does for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, that it truly is life uh, to our weary bones. And we thank you that Christ truly wrestled and truly obeyed in our place and truly died for us and forgiving us all our sin. I pray now, even as we think of the Lord's table, that we would be especially aware of his provision for us, uh, bearing us up in, in, in the, for the times to come. I pray in Jesus' name.